What's up, everyone, and welcome to the 27th episode of Encrypted. Encrypted is a weekly podcast dedicated to guiding you through the blockchain and crypto universe. My name is Ahmed Al Balaghi, and I'm coming to you live from Area 2071 here in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And with me today is my co host, as usual, Faisal Al Hawi. Say hello. Hey, guys. Hope you're having a good week ahead and enjoying your time. And we also have an amazing guest. We're doing, I think, our first remote podcast, recording. Remote recording yeah. yeah. So she's an amazing lady. Maya, I, I hope I do not put your name, Vujinovic. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yes, I got it. Great. So Maya Vujinovic, who's the current CEO of O Group and the former CIO of Emerging Technologies at GE Digital. Welcome to the show, Maya. Thank you, guys. It's great to be here. And of course, it's great to collaborate with you, Ahmed. Awesome stuff. Yeah, we met in Dubai, I think, um, in uh, the Future Blockchain Summit. It was around nearly a year ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, it was, it was, that was a great event, I remember. <laughs> Anyways, Maya, for those who, who don't know you, could you quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Glad to be here and glad to contribute my name is Maya Vujinovic, and I'm a lawyer by trade. I've been in technology since age 25 in Africa when I was doing mobile payments in early 2000s. And this is kind of what uh, led me to the Bitcoin and, and decentralization and many other concepts um, and some of the tools in AI. Currently, we run a uh, O Group. O Group is an investment and a consulting firm. I left GE about a year ago now, uh, where, as you correctly said, I was the CIO of, of all of our emerging tech. And I will talk about some of the things that I've been pioneering there during my time. And this was really, really early when not a lot of protocols were out there. And we were simply just looking at some of the applications in Ethereum and the potential utility in large industrials um, and and places where it's usually hard to scale that. So today at O Group, we really... we made a number of investments since about two years. Uh, I made it personally and then we transitioned into a formal investing and we got very, very excited about a concept of tokenization really early and not because of um, you know the ICOs and everything that comes with that, but we, we got very nerdy about it. We started to really dig deeper into the behavioral science. And the reason why is because O Group essentially focuses on big data. And I know that's a big term. Everybody uses that. But for me, what became fascinating is that, um, you know, New York is the 14th place in the world I live in, right? So I lived in Africa and Middle East and Latin America and Europe and, um, and the U.S. And what I realized in, you know, some of the early days where I was doing mobile payments, even before M-Pesa came around. And M-Pesa, as you know, was kind of an attempt to become a bank, essentially, I saw a, a really, really interesting phenomenon, which was that there was, that we, 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 throughout history, really, if you think about it, the whole concept of human behavior has been one collection of data. And so when I started to see that a lot of these organizations, because of technology tools, are going to be collecting faster data, once I left GE, I wanted to focus on deciphering that data and really understanding the behaviors um, of humans, what incentivizes them, and hence what we landed on these tokens. And hence when... Um, 
we started really doing some consulting work around this, is trying to help larger organizations, governments, companies understand what are the different ways that you can incentivize behavior for more successful business models. So we really focus on that today. And it's been a great journey, a learning journey, and to be surrounded with some of the top minds in the space, uh, and, and also to, to have another foot into this uh, enterprise world as well. No, that's great to hear. I, I remember actually when we actually had lunch, I think at one point during the, the conference last year, and I, I remember that, like the reason why we were talking so much was because you were mentioning how much, like, how much work you guys were, were actually doing in terms of you know, the behavioral economics and the sort of the incentivization of these different protocols and how much you know, real tokenomics should be applied when actually creating a blockchain system or something around that. And it felt that not many, you know, I could probably only name a few and that's probably less than five who actually really think deep down into the token of economics and the actual behavioral science and incentivization as well that goes into these um, different ecosystems. So I, I wanted to ask them, like you mentioned investments and also um, doing all this consulting work. Which one is the majority? Like, where, where do you focus most of your time on? Is it mostly looking at, you know, projects and investing, or is it sort of, you know, doing work for corporates and um, consulting corporates and enterprises on these new novel ideas? Yeah, we um, we're half half, I would say, but may, maybe maybe we do spend a little bit more time on learning. Um, and and helping folks figure it out because I think this whole space of uh, you know you've seen it uh, you've been surrounded by all this there are tons of protocols there are tons of projects there is hype and excitement in this space and you know really we haven't seen that hype and excitement in something that's you know artificial intelligence which is even more convoluted than blockchain much more convoluted than blockchain um so we do spend a little bit more time i guess when i think about it deeply on on consulting and working really with companies who are trying to uh, uncover new business models or who have and and who now need help with governance and figuring out how they're going to engage uh, their network. And so I would say, yeah, if I, yeah, if I think about it, it's probably on that more. So Maya, what, what about the, if we just can like jump into the blockchain world and so on. So it's very interesting to see that you guys are deep diving into the data and how behaviors uh, drive business models and new innovative business models and so on. But how do you see that playing the role with the, the the blockchain as a, as a concept in general, but as well as in the implementations and the applications of it. An amazing question. Um, I think one of the things that I have noticed is, as I've said earlier, there's tons of hype in the space. People are hyping it up, and for whatever reason, they think that blockchain is going to be a solution for everything. But I think those that that um, technologists particularly and folks who kind of sit in this in-between of really understanding the tech and, and the business can very easily see where blockchain can also be used for surveillance and things that are bad and things that essentially this community that started this doesn't want at all, right? And so, you know, the, the behavioral side is, is a very tricky side because, you know, if you look at the concept of 
cryptocurrency, right? Or, or some, some ingredients of blockchain, not all, of course, right? But that's kind of censorship resistance, right? That's ability to verify something that's, you know, trustless transactions. If you look at those, some of those ingredients, that simply does not fit in a lot of the places that one would want to shove blockchain and expect some of the organizations to use it, right? Um, and again, there are different blockchains. There is a there are technical capabilities of blockchains. There are Bitcoin blockchain. There are public private blockchains. One can you know modify these things of who we get an uh, give an option to, who we don't give an option to in terms of access of information. But in general. I think what I've noticed just being a GE, and uh, if I can give you one simple anecdote, in 2015, early, is when I started to talk to leadership about decentralized business models. And the reason why is because industrials like that are something really to be in awe with. You know, you don't just start GE in a back of your garage, right? It's, it's a massive corporation and they own large supply chains and customers and vendors and, um, and it's a huge network. And if you need to start to think about the complexities of various cultures and business models in different places in the world, you start to ask the question, is that sustainable in this world of ever-growing technology and exponential technology, right? And how does that impact all of this? And so... When I looked at behavioral science and token economics, for example, in some of the manufacturing at GE, you know, at first by the high leadership, high up leadership, I was told this is not something that they want to look at. This stuff doesn't work. And Bitcoin was regarded, you know, they associated it right away to Bitcoin, right? They put blockchain and Bitcoin into the same bag. And I think that still happens today, by the way. Um, that lack of information and lack of education uh, is, is still prevalent. Uh, not as much as it was in 2015. But then, then slowly I started to show that actually if, if with the capabilities of smart contracts, if we can program our way you know, to, to have a replicable system where we have machines, you know, that behave a certain way, could use these tokens in a certain way, and you have a faster production, you know, this is what you get. That's when they started to open their eyes and say, wow, okay, we didn't think that behavioral science actually fits in with, with this. And we didn't think that we, by using this, we can incentivize this group of people in our network or these suppliers or whatever to behave differently in order to create, you know, larger business for themselves and then for us, right, to buy our goods and services. So I would say it, in some places goes hand in hand. Um, and in some places it doesn't, not because it doesn't make sense mathematically or the technology doesn't work. It's just simply a lot of people, one, do not understand it, therefore they're afraid of it. And two, they don't want the transparency, right? So it doesn't fit everywhere we're trying to shove shove it in. Um, and I think this is where I see this dichotomy now of people, you know, pushing institutional adoption, but yet most of the principles of where this got started simply doesn't fit with institutional model. Okay. And so, so there, it's really interesting um, the economy there. Why do you think that uh, they they do not want transparency? <laughs> You're asking a question, uh, you know, the ever ever grow, ever non explained question and ever present question in our lives is who am I, right? Um, so, so why don't they not want transparency? I think some people don't understand that sometimes. Look, we we we've built certain institutions around the world 
that function in a certain way and have particular governance models that are hooked, particularly in capitalism, to quarterly reporting. And quarterly reporting has to be done in a certain way and with certain things. And you, you know, it has to be reflected then in your share price. And therefore you have to return that money to shareholders. You are, you owe that to them. And this is, this is how the whole system runs. And so it's really difficult to say now, let's pluck all that out and create a system where everybody benefits equally or somewhat equally, or everybody's incentivized and contributes and everything is open source. Open source doesn't necessarily work. And it's part of my argument a lot of times why Amazon, for example, will keep thriving and why certain centralized systems will keep thriving. And I think as long as we can remember in human history, we've collected data about people. And what I think that we're in now is this kind of, you know, people that are watching people and collecting data and those that are being watched. And we are, we can't turn back. I think it's almost impossible to turn back because of the exponential growth of technology and everybody wants faster tools. And I, I keep meeting executives and just on my recent trip in St. Moritz and meeting some of the executives is everybody wants AI, but, but not a lot of people understand what that actually means. And they just want it because they feel that it gives them competitive advantage. Sprinkling some AI and blockchain dust, isn't it? Right. And I think it's a bit of a problem, right? Because we are, we are, is it a problem? I don't know. These are all existential questions I think some of the philosophers and some of the greatest minds of our times are thinking about, and including Elon Musk and Bill Gates and you know everybody else in the world who's saying, okay, we're going towards this efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. Towards what? Towards a world that we keep exhausting, towards the population we keep exhausting, just so we can get more, quote, efficient? Or what is it? like? But then at the same time, the argument is, Right, we love our apps on the phone. We love the fact that we have the Zoom that we can speak this way, and we don't have to send these long, lost letters and mail to each other, and God forbid, have a podcast that way. Right, so I think there is this really interesting place where we're in, and and I do think that bottom line that the technology is forcing transparency upon our systems, upon our institutions, upon upon our governments, and that people in the governments and institutions are waking up and saying, wait. If we don't do it and don't give transparency to people and don't create systems that are better, technology will force us to do so. People will, you know, do it. We've seen what happened, you know, in, during the Arab Spring. We've seen what happened. We're seeing what hap- what's happening in Venezuela. We're seeing what's happening around the world. So I, I do think that there is this really interesting uh, period that we're in right now where we will be forced transparency upon us, but at the same time, they will be quite centralized systems that simply won't allow that. But and this is where privacy coins come in and the scary part of privacy coins. Yeah, but is that, is that something that governments are even willing to consider, in your opinion? I mean, you, you mentioned like the Arab Spring and whatever happened there. I believe that much like the other bodies or parties learn from whatever is happening during history. Government is very good at learning the trends that could transform something and end up like an Arab Spring. So I agree with you that if they don't take a stand in understanding where the technology will eventually force them to take drastic measures, but 
But I also believe that they are always, you know, learning and expanding and trying to do things differently, not necessarily in, in alignment with the technology. What do you think? No, I, I look, I agree with you. It's not black and white and uh, governments are complex. And I've had extensive experience in Africa and Latin America where I spent over a decade working with governments. Um, <clears throat> I will give you one thought, though. Um, what's the very important function of the government, right? Important function of the government, some would argue, that is to maintain really information. And, and we trust that they maintain the information about organizations, individuals, right? Particular assets or certain activities that are happening, right? We, you live safely in UAE and I live safely in the US because supposedly we trust these institutions and and a lot of times they haven't failed us and a lot of times they've failed us, right? And so they maintain, they're, they're in charge of maintaining records, right? If you look at some of the records, so let's go deeper, right? Of the birth certificates and data about your healthcare and things like that, right? UAE, that's pretty heavily regulated, I would say. Um, in the US, you have something like HIPAA requirements. That is also a massive issue to some of the blockchain projects. And so I can completely see where government could use a blockchain, right, could, could simplify this management of trusted information, could make it easier for the government agencies to access and use the critical public, you know, uh, sector data um, while having the security. But doesn't that beg the question in the mind, I bet when I said this, some of the, your listeners are going to say, wait a second, doesn't that allow some of the governments to actually abuse that information too? And it does. And so I do take up an issue with a lot of folks going around the world, getting on these panels just to fill the panels and talk about things and promote blockchain without really, really, truly understand what these technologies are capable of doing. And I've really had the honor and the privilege to work with some of the top hackers, developers yeah. in the world, some of the Ahmed friends that we know in common um, that are in the space as well uh, to learn from them of how this could actually be tweaked for actually bad purposes and how this could be repurposed to absolutely have control of your population. So I'm not really sure that this is a black and white answer or that, you know, I, th I, I think it will take a, I think it will take a human aspect of us to really demand that transparency, to demand our own ownership of data, to maintain the flexibility of what I do with my own data. And you, you mentioned that there were, you know, bad aspects to it. What and we, we talked about the surveillance capitalism, if we we'll recall. Is that something that's part of it? When you when we say kind of this surveillance, when we use that word, and I, you know, again, I've seen it throughout the number of continents I worked in, and you know, I met folks from Cambridge Analytica before it was even Cambridge Analytica and I was blown away with some of the capabilities that um, that that we've had even at that time this was 2008 and 2009 right um, and what the folks were able to do with the data at that time and the tools and so I think surveillance has been around since the you know, since the humans started to organize themselves, right? It was just in a primitive form. And, and, it, and it's really throughout our history. So, um, and I think it's just right now enabled heavily by our technology. And this is why I'm a very strong uh, proponent of thinking twice before we design these tools, including 
minorities when we are designing tools, including diversity when we are designing these tools. Because I am of a belief that, and I've seen it at GE, right? GE's the companies that has been using concepts of artificial intelligence for the last 20 years, guys. And this is not a new, you know, this is something that we keep seeing right now and people talk about AI and all of this, but some of these tools have been in existence for a long time by companies such as that. And, and for good reasons, right? For production of electricity, for R&D, in healthcare, for various machines that have contributed to lots of countries around the world. But um, today we are running in disadvantage as humans, right? Technology is growing exponentially and we are simply linear learners. And therefore those that have access to tools faster will be able to surveil the ones that don't. And this is where we need a strong, strong group and community and global interaction as one versus right? One group against the other. And just for the simple, simple greed, which by the way, I've also seen this crypto community is exceptionally prevalent. And yet this is the community that, you know, talks bad about Wall Street, right? But yet the greed is, I would say even more prevalent in some cases than on Wall Street. Which, which brings me to a question. Is that even possible? I mean, is that even possible to get people from different parts of the world to work and agree on something if 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 that's on the stake or or if that's at the stake of having the technology work does that even mean the technology would ever work unless it's a bitcoin miner then it's a standard tool set (laughs) (laughs) no you can bring people together i i i'm not sure that that's a you know, that's an issue. I think people, again, we go back to incentivization. I, I do believe that if people are incentivized right, and we've seen a success in UAE, um, that's an incredible country in, in so many ways, right? There are always faults we can point out to, but we've seen situations where you can do that around the world. And, and I'm, I'm not that big of a pessimist. I think it's just a matter of us putting the hard work in. So Maya, I, I had the question regarding the thing we were just talking about. Isn't it easier to, instead of trying to decentralize everything at once, it's better to go like super slow to actually test out what these technologies are, are capable of? Absolutely. I, I'm in agreement with you. Most people probably with, that are in this space will say opposite. Look, as a former CIO and as somebody who's really tested a lot of the companies in the space and brought it in with this intention of um, contributing more to the customers and suppliers and the larger ecosystem of GE and not just the large corporates, right, grabbing for themselves, decentralization in many aspects and industries is inevitable, right? Um, But you're right. In some places, it's not, and, and we should be going slower and and look we are going slower let's just be quite honest for a second bitcoin has been in existence for 10 years what do we have today in terms of functionalities not a lot as somebody would expect in 10 years but that's okay every good technology takes a long time to develop telecom didn't really develop first five six years it took 15 years for that industry to go somewhere and i've been in the space very early um and, and I think one of the things when I look at the components of 
kind of the makeup of the blockchain and what it means to really assemble really good blockchain, the collection of the technologies that make that up carry a significant risk today for any organization and any CIO to take that responsibility. Now, I will argue both ways. I was the first one that pushed that AG. We were the only two enterprises in the world besides IBM that was actually developing something that early, that was testing, that was piloting. And, and, it, and really, as a result of that, I did grow a number of gray hairs while at GE doing that because all I, was get, all I would get is no. But, but I think we've got some massive security issues, right, for a lot of these protocols that we've tested. And you, you can't just shove something to your customers, it's not these organizations at the end of the day, a lot of times. It's also their customers, right? For example, one of the things that I did at GE's, we created uh, something called blockchain as a service, a capability only, right? Nothing too big, nothing too smart, complex, just the capability for customers to come in and play and learn. And, um, and customers did. They were curious. They wanted to. Sometimes we would even have customers push us on the other side and say, hey, we need a blockchain because we feel it could give us security in a certain place. So example of that would be manufacturing and 3D printing. We had some customers that were in stone ages and we had some customers that were way ahead of us and saying, look, we've got massive security probes and, and we get stealing of our design prints, we need uh, a blockchain for this. And can we feel it could provide some cryptographic um, capabilities to provide massive security. And therefore then we get to work and we start creating this. So it's a, it's a, it, it takes a lot more from the ecosystem than just one organization saying, great, we'll just adopt this blockchain. And I just don't think that public blockchains are needed everywhere at the moment. Now, hundred years from now, sure, maybe. And, and by the way, um, you know, AI will probably need a faster highway than we have t- today in order to communicate and transmit that data. And that will develop. But, but the current forms of blockchains and capabilities that we have today uh, really pose a lot of security issues for customers. And they're not scalable um, at the moment. But I would say those that are listening, let's say that are in a government in the positions that can understand this, is to really start piloting, start learning, start inviting smart people in the space that are developing cool projects and work with them. Work with us, right? Um, we've developed a number of pilots. We've developed a number of understandings and learnings for people to start dabbling and seeing just what's out there because sometimes you can be overwhelmed with number of projects and because everybody's trying to sell their own protocol which is another issue by the way in this community so but that's kind of where i would i would uh, stop there uh, maya could you talk about some of those um projects that you've um, done at o group and particularly sort of ones which sort of target enterprise and corporates yeah, sure. We've worked with a number of companies, number of family offices, for example, that have owned logistics and supply chain or that own real estate, that own or that invested in some of the smart city concepts around the world, that have invested in smart city technologies around the world, that are really trying to understand where emerging technology is going to either impact their investment or impact the outcome or where they could uh, perhaps 
include a better service for their customers. So we've looked at an aviation company in Latin America that we worked with that looked at, you know, secondary market for parts. We've looked at a fam- very, very known large family office, very known uh, family around the world who owns a lot of banks and telecoms where they could be deploying blockchain or AI or any other tools. And one of the interesting things that we've developed is this whole kind of concept of telecoms becoming a new bank. And that's something I also feel very passionate about um, and where users actually own their own data. I don't know if you knew, and I don't know how it is in UAE, but you know, here in the US, uh, you can go out there, I'm not actually sure if it's as an individual or a corporation, but you can certainly go out there and buy telecom data about individuals moving in a certain area, right? That's crazy that somebody can just really buy your data out there. Now, they won't know specifically maybe who you are, but, um, or, or in some cases they might, depending on the surveillance that you have. Is that like allowed for anyone as an individual or just like... Yeah, this is what this is what we are researching right now. Actually, we just found out that we can go out there and buy it. I don't know if you have to have an entity or you can be an individual, but it doesn't matter. Even as an entity, right? I can just establish an LLC yeah. tomorrow and go buy this data, right? So uh, it is absolutely crazy. Most people don't know that, and so I think when we when we worked with some of these companies and governments, we've helped them understand where you know certain data points in a certain direction. So, for example, you know if if I was looking at uh, working with with government somewhere, we would probably help them understand if the data such as telecoms that telecoms have in terms of individual movement and you know utility of, of certain individuals, um, how can you repurpose that data for a better of society and include it in your smart cities project, right? Because that's something very powerful that you can give back and you governments can leverage to give back to the society. In some places in Latin America, People are noticing that, you know, there's uh, not noticing, but it's a fact that people have a lack of trust in the government and uh, currencies fluctuate in such a extreme fashion. And the most people that lose on that are the, you know, middle class and lower, uh, lower classes because they lose on their, on the value of their currency and, and impacts their lives much more than it does wealthy individuals. Well, now if you start introducing, you know, concepts of using loyalty payments to actually pay for goods and services to, you know, work with tokens in that sense and repurpose some of the things that telecoms have a capability of, you're looking at a really much, much better business model and a much more contribution to the society. No, that's really interesting. And now that we've sort of talked pretty much a lot about the um, sort of the blockchain angle, um, if we're going if we're going to sort of move towards the crypto side, um, what themes currently in the in the crypto space excite like you most? <laughs> what excites me is um, just the conversation and seeing people debate back and forth around, you know, this institutionals coming in and. And even some crypto folks, you know, who are, who advertise themselves as deep kind of crypto folks, would are working with institutions and getting them on board. And I just, I sometimes I don't even know what that means anymore because. Um, I have to ask you, what does like institutional adoption of crypto mean? Like, what what does that? Talk about it. What does it really mean? Look, there is a there is a 
there's those in the camp that will argue that unless you own your private key, you don't own any crypto. So therefore, any institution, i.e. Fidelity or whoever, that owns you know, your Bitcoin or whatever is, um, is a good thing and they have custody and it's safe and it's trustworthy, right? There are people in a different band camps that will argue different things. And I, I still don't know what it means. Do we need institutions for certain things to be widely adopted? Yes, but that's just the nature of volume, right? Or do we just need more smart minds to understand how we actually develop this user by user and deploy it, like for example, that Abra is doing, maybe that's a way to go. I don't know, but I'm very fascinated with, you know, I would ask a question to audience, I would pause kind of a thoughtful question to say, why have a custodian when you can be your own bank and have a multi-sig, for example, right? And why have a custodian when you can have a smart contract that I can literally program to ring fence somebody's funds. If we had those capabilities in a technology, why are we then pushing on everything else? Sorry, Maya, just just to clarify, what what do you mean by um, writing a a smart contract that could ring fence your own funds? Like, what, what does that exactly mean? Well, it means that you have a programmable contract. What I'm saying that you we have tools today, right? If, if for example, I'll give you an example. At GE, we built, um, I was pushing for a smart contract that I could have machine use to order a part on its own. That's the same example. Why do I then need a human to do that part? If I can have a smart contract that will do the same. Yeah. No, absolutely. So why is that pushing for a custodian to be this big centralized authority that's going to keep keep my Bitcoin, that they can use the Bitcoin, by the way, and lend the cryptocurrency to make more money, right? If I have a technology that I can do that myself and I can make money by lending my own crypto. That actually makes a lot of sense, but I, I believe that going like sort of going to the future and, and even looking at what we already have now, custodians, custodians will still be there because there will be lazy people who just want to pay somebody else to do that job for them. And not just lazy people. I believe like, I mean, we're fundamentally asking questions about substantially different ways of living, which honestly speaking, we don't have the data to say that everyone wants that type of living or everyone wants these kind of, you know, um, new ways of doing things because let's face it, we are very comfortable at certain things. I mean, it, it certainly differs between country and another, but for example, in a country like, uh, let's say for example, the UAE, uh, where the banking has been doing a good job over the years in certain areas, is that something that, I mean, we can definitely ask questions and we can disrupt the, that entire thing, but is that really something that everyone wants? Everyone wants what? I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. I mean, I mean, we are asking questions of what, what kind of new business models or what kind of new ways of doing things like technologies like blockchain or AI can do. But mm-hmm. are we, do we have enough data to say that people actually want these new ways of doing things? Yeah, I uh, <laughs> look, that's again a question, a, a philosophical question, right? Need 
uh, current need in the market versus creating a need. And we can give many examples of where we have simply created a need, right? Did we have a great need for 50,000 apps on our iPhone? Do we have that need, right? We don't have that need. Do some of them work really well and make my life easier and cooler and, um, you know, just more in touch with everybody else? Yes, 100%, right? Do some of them serve no purpose and are just an offshoot of another app and another thing and another thing and another thing, and then you start having five of them, they're all kind of trying to do the same thing, but none of them is doing a good enough job. We have those as well. And so, right, we, then we get frustrations in the market of customers and utilities. And then um, I, I think, look, you're asking you know, a deep question, do people really need certain applications? I, I absolutely think where we are, where we can uncover more liquidity, where we can uncover more success, where we can uncover better business models. So the whole community benefits, the larger ecosystem benefits that people get to use their talents, assets, goods, and services, and they get wider exposure to sell. So it's not just one guy selling the coconuts, but now it's 15 people in village, right? Why not? Those are amazing examples. And this is where we do need transparency. And this is where we do need technology to help us do that. But it's not going to be technology itself. We need human design to do that. We need willingness to have these types of business models. Yeah. And that that will definitely take time. So a quick question before we wrap up, because we are short of time. Where is the killer app in blockchain? You've been traveling the world, Maya. You've talked to so many different people. You've interacted with many projects. You've invested in many projects. Where is the killer app? Do you see it coming this year, next year? Where is it? <laughs> in my pocket. Wait. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Um, Look, I, I don't know about, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, but is it gaming? Maybe. Is it Abra? Maybe it's Abra. I don't know if you guys saw the news, right, this morning, but it's, it's a really big win for Abra and maybe for folks to read about it. And I, I'm not, you know, in any case associated, I'm not trying to you know, push it out there. Bill is just a good friend. But, you know, I see gaming. Gaming tokens have been used in gaming for a long time. Uh, there's more and more built on there. People are actually using it. You know, um, is it cross-border payments and remittances? You know, I think remittances are really hard. I've been doing remittances since really early 2000s. There's been a lot of things done there. I'm not really sure those are going to be killer apps. Um, so, so I think gaming has the volume and kind of the, the, the users are already used to on these tokens. And, and, and so I could maybe see that that's kind of taking off. But I'm not really sure I have a, I have a crystal ball to tell you where it's going to happen for sure. You know what? Now that I say that, I'm not sure that there is a killer app. I actually, you know what? Maybe I'll backtrack that and say there is no killer app. The only maybe killer app, as everybody knows, was a Bitcoin and then maybe our smart contract. But next killer app, I'm not, I'm not really sure if there is one. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think needs to be in place to get that killer app? What needs to be in place? Depending on an industry. You know, if you look at trading, maybe it's something in trading that needs to be there for a killer app to develop there. Maybe it's, um, you know, I don't know. There's got to be a volume. 
There's got to be a true utility. There's got to be a deep purpose. And there's got to be underlying value, right? When you think of Uber and Airbnb, and those are killer apps, right? Why, why did they take off? Let's think about it. And I will go back to the beginning of our conversation, which is the incentives. You know, Travis, no matter what, you know, his personal things or whatever, but I think what people might say and how people feel about Uber and any of these things, let's just look at the business model. You know, Uber figured out an incentivization platform for a lots of people, for an asset that stands still and for people that want to make extra money, that want to kind of be their own bosses. Of course, there was a technical layer to Uber. There is a deep purpose for it or repurposing of something, which I think is going to be, by the way, a new theme in 2019 and going forward is repurposing our assets, repurposing our talents, repurposing our technology, repurposing certain buildings, repurposing, I, well, I said assets, but, um, and then there's an underlying value, right? And then there's a clear utility to something. There are a lot of folks out there, a lot of technologies out there that are, sorry, businesses out there who are trying to shove blockchain and say, oh, blockchain is going to do this and crypto here and it must be used. But there's really no clear utility. And it's kind of hard to adapt for people to see any purpose or utility or value for them to use it. So I think I go back to the tokens and incentivization and all of this, when I look at in investments and when I look at working on something, I really try to see, is there a technical layer that is good, that has some credibility to it? Is there a deep purpose? Is there a value to the larger community or users of that particular thing? And then is there a clear utility? Yeah. And I guess that, that, that ties back to, and I'm quoting Simon Sinek here when it says, People don't buy what you have. People buy why you have that. Mm -hmm. And in being in that, in this period of time where you're being overwhelmed with the, like you said, the 50,000 apps on your phone, but that one app that really has a purpose behind it is the one that really takes off. So I really like that, that way of, the way you put it, yeah. Yeah. All right. So you know that, I mean, this has been a great conversation, guys. Yeah. (laughs) We we should probably consider you as a potential co-host, Maya. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Thank you, guys. It's great to um, hear you again, Ahmed, um, and uh, to meet your co-founder as well and hope to see you guys somewhere in the world. Hopefully. Maya, where could people get in contact, contact with you? Yeah, sure. Uh, easily to reach M for Maya at ogroup.io. That's M at ogroup.io. Great stuff. Thanks a lot, Maya. And for okay. those of you who listen to this episode to enjoy Encrypted, and if you still haven't subscribed to the podcast, please go and subscribe. Maya, I don't know if you've subscribed yet, but you could easily do it through any podcast um, platform um, that you have. And please, you could also go and review and rate the show um, on your on Apple Podcasts as well. And you can easily rate us uh, like a five star or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and if you like us, maybe put four point five. I don't know yeah, if it's a four point five. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Have a great evening. Thanks a lot. Thank Maya. you. Thank you, you man. Bye bye.